I wonder if you, um, you know the phrase, blood is thicker than water. Do you know that phrase, blood is thicker than water? I wonder if you think you know what it means or where it came from. It's not just a scientific observation on the comparative viscosity of different liquids, but actually has symbolic significance. Often lots of people think it means, well, family, those biological family ties we have are closer than anything else. Those are the things that really matter at the end of the day. Um, bottom line, all the other things you want to throw in there, that is the thing that really matters. That's not actually what the saying means. The origin of the saying is this, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. There is an even deeper tie an even stronger bond than biological family, and it is the blood of the covenant. It is being found in Jesus Christ. That is thicker than anything else, even the water of the womb. We're thinking today about Christians as the children of God. That was that short passage we had in 1 John 3. That's where we're going to be focusing, so maybe turn to that now. But just to share... um, my family's own personal experience with seeing just how being in as part of the Christian family, brothers and sisters in Christ, is indeed a powerful bond. Um, before Abby and I started at training at Oak Hill College um, uh, nine years ago now, we, um, we went on a road trip across America. Um, it was our sort of big final holiday before entering the trenches of ministry. Um, and uh, we, we took quite a few weeks to go across. Abby was pregnant at the time. The doctor said, go and have a great time. You're in perfect health. Everything will be wonderful. And we, we started down in San Diego and made our way up and across and found ourselves in Washington, D.C. So quite, quite a spread of that glorious country. And in Washington, D.C., Abby was probably about 23 weeks pregnant at this time. Abby went into labor. And we went into hospital, and there was nothing they could do. And our son, Nathaniel, was not born alive, and they couldn't do anything about it. We didn't know anyone in Washington, D.C. We barely knew anyone in America. Movies don't count. Um, We had had some uh, friends who were in San Diego, which is why we went um, there in the first place. We got in contact with them, told them what was happening. And my friend had a very tenuous link with a church in D.C., in that he'd spent a few days with the pastor once, and he emailed the pastor and said what was going on. And this pastor was on holiday, but he emailed the elders in his church, and one of his elders was a senior government lawyer, apparently stood up at his desk, having seen this email, what was going on with us, and told his colleagues he wouldn't be back in for a couple of days. He came to us in the hospital as we were going through this, and he looked after us. He brought us food. He dealt with the painful bureaucracy of the American healthcare system for us, so did all the paperwork kind of stuff. And then he promised and offered and did pay for the cremation of our son's ashes and sent them back over to England, um, where we had already come back. And I tried to thank him for this. And he said, please don't thank me. I don't want to say you're welcome. And he, he gave two reasons. One, do you know how generous God has been with me? And two, we're brothers in Christ. This is what he would have us do. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. He was my brother that day and still remains so. I've never spoken to him again, but he is still my brother. In heaven, I will thank him 
and get him to say you're welcome for that generosity that he showed us then. Being children of God is an astonishing thing. The book of 1 John is written to those who call themselves Christians, those who are children of God. And we saw in chapter 1, in verse 4, that the Apostle John is writing that his joy may be made complete. He and the Apostles are in fellowship with the Father and the Son. And he wants the people he's writing to, to to make his joy complete, to share in that joy, to enjoy that fellowship with God in that special way, and therefore share in this fellowship of being sisters and brothers in Christ with John. Now, John's gospel was, um, you know, the sun came down, the eternal sun came down, was made flesh in order to make us children of God. That's what we heard in the opening verse of the service. He was the obedient son we never were. He was the, the perfectly obedient son and the sacrificial lamb. And in John 20, 17, there Mary is in the garden um, of the resurrection trying to hold on to Jesus. And Jesus says, don't cling to me. Go and tell the others that I am ascending to my father and your father. Apart from that first moment in John's gospel, this is the most explicit time Jesus is saying, now you call him father too, because I'm going back to him. He came down from heaven and returned, but when he returned, he took many sons and daughters with him to an eternal ever after that happiness does not begin to describe. We heard it in that reading in John 17, verse 26. I want all of this so that the love, Jesus, the Son is praying to the Father, that you have for me may be in them. That is what the gospel is about. John's gospel points us to faith in Christ as the way that sinners can become children of the living God to be forgiven their sin, to discover a relationship with their creator that words cannot possibly capture. And in writing this letter, the first of his letters, he is trying to build on that foundation and to say, come on, let's really dig deep into this thing that we know. Let us live as the children of God that we are. I don't know if you've sensed as Tom has been preaching through the letter so far, how Tom has been wanting his joy to be complete as he wants us as a church to grow as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the family of God here in Downshire Hill in Hampstead. But the thing is, as we've been hearing, fellowship with God, fellowship with the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit, taking part in that, that relationship of sonship means taking part in the life of the one who is infinite light, we were told early on in chapter 1. And thing is, fellowship with light means no fellowship with darkness. Living for and with the God who is eternal and then therefore has no possibility of ending or passing away means not living for and with a world that is indeed passing away. Living with the God who is purity itself means hating sin and running away from it. Worshipping the God who is truth means hating the lies that would take us away from him. And these themes kind of keep coming back round and around in 1 John. And the thing is, they're binary themes. You're either on or you're off on these things, John seems to be saying. Particularly take that image of light and darkness. If you try and turn down the dimmer switch on your Christian life to let a bit of darkness in, John is saying, there is no dimmer. As soon as you want to try and turn down the dimmer switch, turn down the brightness of the Christianity in your life, you're just going to end up with darkness. Jesus must be everything to you, John is saying, or else he's nothing at all. 
And we've been looking at the pressures that come and try and take us away from living in Christ, of seeing Jesus that way. In the introductory sections, we were warned, saying you you have fellowship with God who is light, but prefer to walk in darkness. That's a problem. There's a danger in saying, I don't have a problem with my sin, instead of confessing and trusting in the punishment-bearing death of Jesus. About the danger of saying we know that we know God in a loving way, but actually we hate the words that come out of his mouth as we disobey his law. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at pressures from outside the church. So verses 15 to 17, the world holding up to us many things that we might want to go after instead of God and saying, follow this, follow this. John has been saying, resist those pressures. And then last week, verses 18 to 29, pressures inside the church, people abandoning the faith, false teachers teaching wrong things about Jesus teaching wrong things about who he is and and what it is he came to do. And we saw last week, verse 28 of chapter 2, Dear children, continue in him. Keep going in Christ. Remain in him. Abide in the Son, and therefore keep in the Father. This, you could say from one angle, is the heart of the letter. Keep going in Christ. Continue in Christ. Abide in the Son. And we get into our um, three verses today, the way how John thinks we're going to make sure we keep doing that. And it's just this one thing he wants us to hear. If you are in Christ, you are a child of the living God. If you've got the, um, the blue service sheet, you'll notice there are seven things that I want to draw out about the fatherhood of God in today's sermon. The first two are longer. The second, well, the second set, the, the final five are much shorter. So if we get to the end of the second one and you're looking at your watch thinking, blinking, eh? this is going on. Don't worry, we're going to rapidly get through the final five. Panic not. And the first thing that we see in this passage, verses one to three, about the fatherhood of God is this. Let God's love capture your attention. Okay? Let God's love capture your attention. And it's not actually that obvious in in the versions in the the Bible that we have in our pew that 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 is what John is doing. He does get it. it The translation does get it. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. But actually in the original, there's a word, a very important word that isn't here now. So given that it's quite important, I thought I'd need to tell you about it. It's this word, behold. Look. It's an attention-grabbing, stop everything you're doing and look at this. See the love of God. Okay, John is capturing our attention. He is saying, you need to just stop and listen. So he's kind of pausing his argument so far just to dig a little bit deeper into this reality, to drive home what we need to hear if we are to remain in Christ, if we're to put into practice the things he's encouraging in this letter. Stop and consider the fatherhood of God. Fill your vision with this. Look at this all-consuming love. And so I want to ask you this morning, what is the thing in your life that is capturing your attention? What is the thing in your life that really is filling your vision, that is taking up all that you see? Because there's a reason why John presses this hard here. There's a reason why he kind of stops his argument and comes up for breath to consider this amazing thing. We need to hear his commands to stop in our own tracks, as he wanted his original readers to do. Because remember, he's saying to people who wanted fellowship with God, but also a little bit of fellowship, perhaps, with darkness, 
people who wanted to turn down the dimmer switch on their Christian lives, or perhaps who had tried to turn down the dimmer switch on their Christian lives, but actually he's saying you will just end up in darkness. Are you struggling in your Christian life? Are you finding your prayer life dry? Do you find it hard to sing songs like our opening song, Rejoice, Rejoice? Were you rejoicing as you sang? Did you feel, yes, this really is something that gives me the deepest joy in the world? Or maybe as we speak to one another, or whatever it is, what is capturing your attention that is stopping you feeling that way about God? um, In home groups, we're doing Discipleship Explored, and we had an interesting discussion a few weeks ago as we were looking at Philippians 1 and seeing that Paul was obsessed with Christ. I don't know if you were there seeing that. Paul is like, I don't care what happens to me. As long as Christ is preached, that is all I care about. And in fact, Christ is so wonderful, I just want to depart this life and go and be with him. And we had this discussion in our home group about how challenging that was, about how hard we found that, and thinking, actually, do we feel about Christ the way that Paul did? That he could die and be happy because he was going to be with him, and that is better. Paul felt that way, and if we are to have that attitude, we need to feel it too. And we need to have a kick up the bum to say what is most precious to us. And John is giving us that kick up the bum here. He is saying, stop and consider. Let the love of God the Father shown in Christ be the thing that captures your attention. So going back to the two things we mentioned before, verses 15 to 17, the world offers, in, sorry, in chapter 2, the world offers you a smorgasbord of delights and enticements, saying, come this way, come this way. And you might be told a million times that following the ways of the world rather than following the ways of God will lead you to hell, but there they are, tempting you, pulling you away, saying, this is better. Or perhaps in the church, we see people abandoning the faith, or, or perhaps changing the teaching of the gospel, somehow denying who Jesus is and what he did, or changing key parts of the biblical teaching about what it means to follow him. Maybe someone you looked up to as a Christian, whether as a leader or otherwise, and some of the people that John's dealing with clearly were, ends up not being who you thought they were. What do you do then? How then do you make sure you keep going in Christ? John says, make sure the thing that captures your attention is not human teachers. Make sure the thing that captures your attention is not any of those things, but the love of God in Christ. Because what you're looking at, what you're filling your vision with, is going to shape you, it's going to form you, it's going to affect you in deep ways. Filling your vision with that little screen that you can hold in your hand, scrolling through Instagram or Twitter or or playing games or WhatsApp or whatever it is you're looking at, filling your vision with the bigger things on the bigger screens, Netflix or sports, filling your vision with human teachers saying they're the ones um, that I'm following, they're the ones that mean everything to me. That is not going to help you to continue in Christ. There's nothing wrong with those things. They're not bad things. But if they are capturing your attention, well, for instance, for me, the thing that, that, you know, I'm thinking a lot about at the moment, you know, Wales winning the Rugby World Cup. Maybe there's no one else here thinking that, but I am. I'm really desperate for that to happen. If that is the thing that is capturing my attention, then I'm trying to turn down that demo switch. I'm saying that is more important to me than Jesus. If you want to continue in Christ, you need to stop and look. Consider the gospel. And John seems to think if you really get that, then you're going to be on the right track. Listen to what another John, many centuries after this one, but a few centuries before ours, said. A guy called John Owen. So much as we see of the love of God, so much shall we delight in him and no more. I'll say that again. So much as we see of the love of God, 
That's how much we will delight in God, but no more than that. If the love of God is filling our vision, then we will be full of delight. But if, if it's not, then we won't have it. John Owen goes on, Every other discovery of God without this will but make the soul fly from him. But if the heart be much taken up with this, the importance of the Father's love, it cannot but be overpowered, conquered, and endeared unto him. Put this to the test, he says. Exercise your thoughts upon this very thing, the eternal, free, and fruitful love of the Father, and see if your hearts don't delight in him. I boldly say, believers will find it as thriving a course as they ever pitched upon in their lives. If you're finding it hard to muster up commitment to Christ, what is capturing your attention? Let it be this instead. Second point, I told you the first two are long. Stay with me, it's all right. Second point, what is so good about this thing that needs to capture our attention? Well, the second thing about the fatherhood of God that I want you to see in this passage is the strangeness of God's love. Okay, I'll explain that. It's the strangeness of God's love. The words that John uses, this how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, it actually means from what kind of place is this love that the Father has shown us. This is an alien love, he is saying. What he's saying is that God the Father would call you and me his child is not normal. It is not expected. It should blow your mind. The eternal God of infinite holiness and delight becomes our Father when we are those who hated and spurned and killed his Son. So it might have been that as you heard it read, well, that's not that strange. You know, what amazing love. How crazy is this love that we should be called children of God? Thinking, yeah, aren't we all? Aren't we all the children of God? Aren't all of humanity the children of God? Well, we need to be careful here. In one sense, yes. Okay, don't mishear me. In one sense, yes, in creating everything, particularly creating human beings at whatever stage, age, or capacity, in his image, God is fatherly towards us. We can say truly we are his offspring. We were made to be sons and daughters of God. That is right. And in fact, that's why Christianity has been the driver and source of things like human rights in the way that the world now sees them. The idea of equal dignity and worth of every single human being. And so absolutely then, we want to say in one sense, yes, humanity can be called children of God in that way. But, but that is not the special understanding of the fatherhood of God that is being spoken about here. Remember, Jesus um, in his prayer in John 17 talked about it. I, I want these ones who believe in me to have the love of the Father in them, suggesting that those who don't, don't have that experience. You see, what Jesus offers is not a sort of a general sense of God and his love. It's a special invitation to a relationship that the Son eternally has to the Father. A relationship of intimacy and love, and this is key, that is not one that is natural to us, especially in light of our sin. There is an idea around in the church, it's a relatively recent idea, kind of took hold in about the 19th century, of something called the universal fatherhood of God. Maybe, maybe in the 19th century, these big ideas of human progress. And actually, people aren't as bad as we thought they were after all. So yeah, of course, God's everyone's father, because we're pretty great. But in the New Testament, Jesus and his apostles teach something very different. In this special relational sense, no, not everyone is God's child in that way. 
because we chose, as humanity, another father altogether, and we're quite happy going our own way. And it's here in the, later on in this, um, in this chapter. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do right is not a child of God. Now, before you get scared and start seeing satanic gothic themes going on here, it's quite simple. Adam and Eve chose to follow the devil rather than God. And everyone who is born is born in Adam. And Jesus himself talked in this kind of language. That is what is going on here. In Adam, those who are born as human beings are by nature children of wrath. That is what the New Testament teaches. Can you see now why John says, How amazing is this? We're called children of... Do you get that? This is weird. This is not normal. It should not be this way. What an amazing love that sinners, those people that have hated God, God has made his children. God has set that kind of love upon them. Jesus, God, the eternal son, is son by nature. He is no one and nothing other than son, but he's the only one for whom that is natural. For us, for creatures, for sinners, to be called a child of God is out of this world, unheard of, alien, knock you off your feet in shock, grace. And that's key to remember. Maybe you just heard me read verse 10 of chapter 3 and thought, ah, I, I don't do that enough. I don't do enough righteousness to earn my place as a child of God. But that's the point. It's not about earning it. This is love. It says in 1 John 4, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. God loved us first because we would never have chosen to love him. And it is a truly astonishing love. It arises in God's heart and he sets this fatherly love on someone. To make someone your child means binding yourself to them with all that is yours. And when you remember who we are, it is astonishing that God showed us this love. This is not how we function. Okay, As humans, we love the lovable. There is something in the object of our love that calls out our love and makes us love them. But in our sin, there was nothing lovely that would deserve this kind of love. Think about the choice, a little bit of a thought experiment here. Um, and it's, it's just an illustration, and, and I, hope, I hope this doesn't um, uh, uh, not offend anyone, but sort of bring up some painful memories. But think about the choice that perhaps adoptive parents might face as they're looking at adopting a child. Say they go to the imaginary, um, in my mind, orphanage, and maybe they see the, maybe the cute babies, the ones that are lovely, or the the children that are well-behaved and nice, and and are more attracted to them. Yeah, they're the ones that might make my home lovely. But you go past the room that's got the teenager in it who has a criminal record, a propensity to violence, and tattooed across the knuckles, I hate you, yes, you, who's more likely to nick your silverware than lay the table. And you think, well, yeah, who, who would want that child? Do you know what the message of the gospel is? God wants that child. God wants them. And maybe this morning, literally, that is how you feel. Rejected by other people, uncared for, unwanted in various ways. Hear me, God says to you, in the person of his son, I will be your father. Spiritually speaking, we're all that child. 
But God set his alien love upon us when he made us children in Christ. And this is a love. It springs with an irresistible attraction. It comes from a perfect father who never stops loving or rejoicing in his children. It breaks through sin and failure and ugliness and self-pity and laziness and ignorance and evil and jealousy and hatred and all the other things that litter our lives. It breaks through grabs hold of enemies, pays off their debts, and sweeps them into the blessedness of a father who rejoices in those people as he rejoices in his eternal son. This is not a little love. That's why John says he lavishes it upon us. It is like the Niagara Falls kind of love. You don't just dip your toe in it, you are swept off your feet. That is the love of God in Christ that he would call sinners his children. How great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. Point three gets quicker. The reality of our present identity. John says, and so we are. What amazing love that we should be called children of God, and so we are. This is a real thing. This is a real identity that we have. We're not sort of called children of God in name like we're wearing a label, some kind of metaphor or something. We really are, if we trust in Christ, we are God's children. It, maybe Think about this, maybe we have a new name on our birth certificate in the place where it says Father. No matter the circumstances of our birth or perception or our early childhood, maybe we've had to beg for love from fathers or stepfathers, maybe we've had good dads. Maybe we've only had distant fathers, maybe we've had excellent ones, whomever we call Dad, there is now for us in Christ a more fundamental part of our identity. We are children of the living God. In the ancient world, your name was a matter of huge significance. How someone was identified, how someone was valued, depends on where they came from, from where you derived your name. That mattered almost more than what you did. And honor came from the identity of your household. If you are in Christ, you come from the most honorable household of all. One writer says this, Thus, if you are a Christian, your identity is not as a plumber, bricklayer, nurse, clerk, or doctor, or fill in that list as applies to you. That's what you do. But you are first and foremost a child of God. That is who you are. And it really is who we are. Fourth thing about the fatherhood of God, God's children carry the cross. God's children carry the cross. Straight away, second half of verse 1, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Again, we heard that in that reading from John 17, Jesus saying, the world doesn't know me. The world hated him, rejected him, and killed him. And Jesus says, that is the way for all those who are in me. No servant is greater than their master. The world does not know us because it did not know him. In, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, he's already explained everything in the world, cravings of, of man, lust, boasting, does not come from the Father. It comes from the world, and therefore the world will reject those who are of the Father. We are co-heirs with Christ, it says in Romans 8, provided we're willing to suffer with him before entering his glory. And that challenges us. Maybe we want to get to the good stuff of being adopted by this king of the universe. And there is loads of it. But John says the first thing he goes to is, you will not be known by the world if you come from the Father in this way, if you are born again from the Father. 
The world does not know the children of the God that the world has rejected and spurned. Being God's child does not mean your best life now. It does not mean your best life now. It means carrying your cross and bearing that name that brought suffering. But, point number five, it does mean your best life ever. What is point number five that we see? The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Look at the first half of verse two. Dear, dear friends, we are now, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. We are children of God, and yet there is a fullness to being children of God that hasn't been revealed, that is not seen in our lives. So the church will look weak and pathetic and ridiculous. Christians may well look weak and pathetic and ridiculous, but that does not reflect the fullness of our identity as children of God. The best is yet to come. Don't be fooled into thinking that your achievements or your house or your children's education or your education or your savings or your holidays or whatever it might be are the best things that will ever happen to you. They are not. The best is yet to come in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus, in John's gospel, said, I I go ahead to prepare a room in my father's house. You think your Hampstead house is nice? It's nothing. It'll crumble into dust. But if you are a Christian, you have a place in a house that will last forever. The best is yet to come. Point number six, the pinnacle of our hope is Christ-likeness. The pinnacle of our hope is Christ-likeness. Still in verse two, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When God returns in Christ and, and the curtain is pulled back to reveal the throne upon which he sits, we as creatures will see him, his children will be like him, our journeying will be over, the waiting will be finished. God is now changing us bit by bit to make us more like Jesus, but on that day the transformation will be complete. We wait for that glorious end. What is it exactly that we will see? Maybe you're thinking, well, it's difficult to say. God, we know, is invisible. It says in in John's Gospel, chapter 1, that no, no one can see the Father, and yet in the humanity of the Son, as he became flesh, the visible God is made visible. So maybe this is saying at least we will see Jesus in his glorified humanity, and we will be made exactly like him. In the twinkling of an eye, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. Maybe we will see God in some other way, with sort of a spiritual sight. Certainly the point of of what John is saying is this, the highlight of our hope is entering into this life of sonship, of being sons and daughters in a way we have never known, that is more glorious than words can capture, that will be full of peace and happiness and of greater worth than everything this universe has to offer. Finally, Point number seven, children of the living God bear the family likeness. Children of the living God bear the family likeness. Look at verse three. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We bear the family likeness. John is here now picking up again the point he kind of hinted at in verse 29 of chapter two. 
Everyone who does what is right has been born of him because he is righteous, you see? So the idea is that, that if we are from a holy and righteous father, we are brothers united in and with a holy and righteous son, then we must be holy and righteous ourselves. We must be putting sin to death in our lives. We will practice righteousness. The pure life of God should be seen working its way out in our lives here and now. What this is saying is we need to live now as we truly are, as children of the living, pure, and holy God. That is who we are. Let's live like it. Perhaps a way of um, illustrating this, adapting a story from my childhood. So grew up in Wales, played a lot of rugby at school, um, and there were um, a couple of families in my school. Let's just, you know, for the sake of it, call them the Jones and the Williams families. Um, and I, one, one family, sort of big rugby-playing family, amazing, you know, really did the job, very good at what they were doing. The Williams family, rough, dirty players on the rugby field, still good at rugby, but they were dirty, cheated, broke all the rules. The Jones family did everything right. And I I remember distinctly uh, a PE teacher saying to, let's say, someone from the Jones family, you're playing like a Williams. You're playing like a Williams. What are you doing? You're a Jones. Stop cheating. I think they'd perhaps um, kick someone in the ribs in a ruck or something like that and said, that is not how Joneses play. Play like a Williams. It's a crude illustration, but you get the point. We are not... Children of the devil, John says. We are not children of the world. We are not any more children of wrath. We are children of the living God. Stop playing like a Williams. Play like a Jones. I mean, Evans and Davis could work as well. But, you know, stop playing like a Williams. Play like a Jones. Stop playing like a child of sin. Live like a child of God. If you are in Christ, that is who you are. John says, flipping well, live like it. Listen to how one person put it. Why do we imagine God to be so unmoved by our heartfelt attempts at obedience? He is, after all, our heavenly father. What sort of father looks at his daughter's homemade birthday card and complains that the color scheme is all wrong? What kind of mother says to her son after he gladly cleaned the garage but put the paint cans in the wrong shelf? This is worthless in my sight. What sort of parent rolls his eyes when his child falls off the bike on the first try? This is important. There is no righteousness that makes us right with God except for the righteousness of Christ, who did it all in our place. But for those who have been made right with God by grace alone through faith alone, and therefore have been adopted into God's family, many of our righteous deeds are not only not filthy in God's eyes, they are exceedingly sweet, precious, and pleasing to him. Let this good news capture your attention. Lots of good things, wonderful things, a wonderful mix of things that distinguish Christians from one another. Cultures, languages, race, social demographic backgrounds. But in Christ, what John is saying is we all have one spiritual DNA. And it will never be erased. And one day we'll be involved in a family reunion that will last forever. Fill your vision with that. Look what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Amen.